What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. The great rotation is the market starting to turn its back on this year's tech titans and head toward a new set of leaders. We'll check out the breakout in industrials, financials, and small caps and ask, is it real? Plus, serving up live sports, Netflix set to court new viewers with a special live exhibition tennis match. What impact will another streamer diving deeper into sports have on Disney and ESPN? And later, snapping up shares of Snap will bring you the upgrade driving today's move. Nike roaring higher. What's behind its one-month jump of 12%? And buyout talks giving Macy's a boost. Who else is riding high on this news? I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And we start off with the latest sign that the great rotation may be underway. Big tech stocks all dropping to kick off the week. Meta leading the losses down more than 2%. The so-called Magnificent Seven losing a combined $160 billion in market cap just today. But the broader market seemed to respond to the mega cap sell-off with a big shrug. All three major averages finished the day in the green with the S&P 500 notching its highest close since March of 2022. In fact, the equal-weighted S&P outperformed the benchmark by a ratio of more than two to one. So what can we glean from this great rotation in the markets? Now, first of all, mm. you'll probably notice a little different. Yeah, what's going on here? Today, Something, looks right? Something looks awesome. The network got a big graphics oh. redesign, new charts, new ticker, new everything. Same traders. All part of an effort to make Bummer. what you well. see on the screen bigger, bolder, and easier to understand. So we hope you like it. Um, we think it looks amazing. But... Uh, Guy. People at home saying you should have gotten rid of that jerk Adami and kept the graphics. <laughs> Probably right. Now, it's very encouraging. And just to amplify what you brought up, given all those stocks you mentioned down and SMH, which is 19 percent NVIDIA, which was lower on the day, was higher on the day. And that continues to sort of levitate through those prior double tops. So it is a very encouraging sign. I'm not going to dismiss it at all. Again, we play the game, if I had told you. If you had told me all the things you just said, guy, where's yes going to be going to be? Down 40 handles. Easy. Obviously, that didn't happen. And we saw a couple days last week that sort of mirrored today. So encouraging sign. Um, but again, I'm skeptical as to all the bad news we continue to hear that's being dismissed. At what point does it matter? I'm glad you brought up the SMH because I, I was. it was just basically NVIDIA that pulled back. AMD higher, you know, Broadcom higher. Intel, your Intel higher. My Intel. Yeah, yeah, doing really well. Well, there's, there was comments out of the government, you know, talking about the invest in our own semiconductor sector. There's a lot of money that's going to be thrown at companies, especially those that are seen as national champions here. Uh, you know, Intel, which really hasn't been a champion of anything for the last five years, but it really, uh, from a stock perspective, it's under-owned. And, and the valuation is very different than some of the peers. And in their core business and in data center, they're starting, to, you know, we found a bottom. Um, what I think is interesting is that, yes, you are seeing some broadening of the market. It, it didn't happen when the market bottomed at, on August 
excuse me, October 26th, 27th. It bottomed on the CPI November 13th. So if you look at the, the equal weighted S&P, it's, it's only outperformed by 3%. Let's not get too worked up. But it is important. And we have seen some other, uh, I would say some sectors have done better than others, even in the more equal weighted. I think industrials have done very well. Banks have obviously done very well. Um, energy has underperformed and some of that related to some, some of the macro. Uh, but I would get back to, let's be clear, Triple Qs or NASDAQ 100 outperformed the S&P today, and the semiconductors were up 2.4. So I would just get back to, if you look at a relative performance chart of the NASDAQ 100 to the S&P, uh, look, that's an uptrend that's a really nice chart from, from, from August. Uh, and if you look at where semiconductors are going, I still think that they have leadership. For the, the, the MAG-7, maybe it was slightly different. It was, you know, today was not a great day. Look at software. Look, look, at, look at some broader parts of the tech sphere um, really outperforming. And in fact, I, I I think some of these names are underlooked. You look at a crowd strike, you look at a snowflake. Guy talks all, all the time about Palo Alto. I mean, some of these names have been must-owns, and, and they're still going higher. If we get through, obviously, CPI tomorrow, Fed meeting on Wednesday, and it's just benign, it, it's, it is. I mean, like, uh, you know, white flag here, you know, like, like, like we're off to the races. I mean, like when I say off to the races, I mean, we're like, you know, going back towards that 4,800. That's just how these markets work, right? And we're at this time of year where there really won't be any data unless there's something that we can't foresee, maybe geopolitical or the like here. And then you just have to kind of make a decision here, right? Like the stuff that got us here, it's rotation right now. I look at that equal weight S&P up 14% from the October 27 low, and I look at the S&P that's up 12.5%. I don't think that's really speaking to no, a, a level of breadth that's that important. I think when you look at the SMH making new all-time highs today, to your point, up nearly 2.5%, with NVIDIA down 2%, that is impressive when you think one-fifth of that um, index or ETF is that one stock. But again, Broadcom, I mean, you could have had all you wanted two days ago down 15% from where it is right now. They gave a quarter. They gave the guidance. The stock wasn't moving. We're sitting here on the desk. That was the same thing that went on with AMD. But it's funny, you know, like sometimes in markets, people get a little geeked up for all the wrong reasons. You know, at the time when when uh, Google or Alphabet was demonstrating this Gemini, right, and uh, it was starting to come out, and it was just not doing anything. And the next day, it was up 5 6%. This is a $1.5 trillion market cap company. And everything that I've read over the last five days since that move is not good for Alphabet and Gemini, like relative to what OpenAI is doing, relative to their own execution. And so, like, it just to me means that investors want to do the things that they know how to do. They know how to buy dips. They know that rates are down, the dollar's down, crude's down, inflation expectations are down, right? And, and it seems like, I'm going to just trigger guy here, it seems like a Goldilocks situation for this moment right now, given where investors are. But I don't think it has to last that way as we get into Q1. Holy lock and locks and three bears. Mm, mm. How many charges do we have today? Three. <laughs> well, Tim's, Tim's, Tim's been bullish yeah, 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 yeah. for quite some story. time. So quickly, <laughs> get enough. listen, I, I hear what everybody is saying. It's, it is interesting. Again, Julian's going to come on in a minute to talk about his prognostications. But there are so many things to be concerned about. But what seemingly is assuaging all those concerns is the daily rise in the S&P 500 as if those concerns go away. The concerns haven't gone away. In some instances, they may have gotten worse. But again, the S&P is the judge and jury right now. My incorrectly, you know, my concern for a while has been at some point the market's going to start to take notice and matter. It hasn't happened yet. When do you give that up? I don't know. 
I mean, nothing's going to change. You know, the things that I'm concerned about are long. These things have long tails, long cycles. They're not going away. Peace is not going to be declared overnight. Like, things aren't going to go away. Bank credit, which has been contracting, leading up economic indicators down 19 months in a row. That doesn't change on a dime. All those things have to filter through. And, and some of those long kind of tail trades, I, I totally believe in that. I believe, at least in some of the investing that I've done over my career, especially in international, uh, the, the dollar... I would say until last October, but then obviously it's had a couple very strong bouts this year where it's pushed higher in the face of a lot of people thought it'd go weaker. 13-year bull market, 13-year bull market in the dollar. Again, the move in gold, one of the best 20-year charts going. And they're emblematic of what's going on with the Fed and monetary policy and a lot of things going on. Um, The the minute, and look at Bitcoin, uh, you know, and I'm not, uh, you know, there's there's much more informed people than me on Bitcoin. I'll just tell you, and I remember Brian Kelly saying this probably two years ago, when the Fed's done or when the market's going to sniff out the Fed's done, Bitcoin's going to have a big rally, leaving aside the halving and all these other things. There are asset classes that are playing the long game right now, and I think some of those trades are on. What happens if we have a situation where, let's say the CPI data is a little you know, hot, okay? We have some data that starts to heat up a little bit. Let's say some of these geopolitical hotspots start to heat up a little bit. We start seeing this inventory restocking, this stockpiling, all this sort of stuff. We see a greater push towards deglobalization, reshoring. All this stuff's inflationary. What if we have a 10-year back above 4.5% in the not-so-distant future? How do you think stocks with a 12.5 VIX are going to react to that? Like, like to me, I just don't see that as particularly bullish. I don't really see where valuations are right now, and I know no one cares about valuations right now. No one cares. Like, Trust me, okay? But they will care, and it will be one of the reasons why when they're careening lower, because if there's ever a fundamental reason to sell the MAG-7, and we may know in late January when we get Q4 earnings and Q1 guidance or we ever visibility that they have, if there's a reason to sell them, they're going to sell hard. And all this stuff, all the crap, all the unprofitable stuff, all the laggards that people have been piling into since November 13th, they're going to come out of that stuff really quickly, too. So I think the higher we run into year end or into the new year is the harder we fall if there are fundamental fundamental reasons to actually take profits or to reduce exposures. Well, yeah, and, and of, that's of course. And, and we have sentiment that also has gotten, if you're measuring complacency in the VIX, uh, it's a good place to start. But there's there's all types of investor uh, surveys, you know, the AAII, which came out late last week and, and basically pointed out a level of complacency in terms of the bearishness, which, you know, uh, or the bullishness that's really, you know, back to 2018 levels, uh, the bearishness that's very, very different than when we started November. So to me, a lot of this also just just gets back to positioning and sentiment. And, and I think that's that's kind of the, the those are the different pieces of what markets give you. We, we talk technicals, we talk fundamentals, we talk positioning. And, and I think, frankly, uh, the fundamentals in, in terms of the macro and the leading indicators that guys cited, they, they've been terrible for a long time. But but I look at the MAG-7, I look at the software companies. I mean, these guys are still growing. You know, there's there's enormous growth going on in a handful of companies. There's a lot of companies that are not. So uh, I, I think the most important things right now are Positioning. And positioning right now says we'll, we'll, we'll touch those all-time highs, but then I think it's going to be tough to go a lot higher. If yields go back to 4.5% or go above, how do we – you think that stocks will go down. Yeah. But we've seen those levels before yeah. and more. So does, is a reaction worse or is it better? Are, have stocks gotten used to the idea and it's so fascinating. Or? It's a great question. I mean, you know, on the way up, stocks care. On the way back down, they champion the fact that we're through it. So it's – it's seemingly this Pavlovian response to, you know, as rates come down, party on. If rates go back to 4.5%, I'm hard-pressed to believe it's going to be encouraging for stocks because it's not – they're going to go up for one of two reasons or both, hot CPI or auctions, which continue to be at best tepid or at worst bad. 
Well, what's interesting, I, I said uh, one month ago, the night before, a very benign or very bullish CPI, that that CPI number was not going to do a lot because I thought we had had a lot of rallies uh, on weaker inflation. At some point, um, I, I do think some of this, genie is out of the bottle. I do think right now, remember, higher rates were bad. Um, the other side of that is are low rates good? Um, and this is where the markets are struggling. Right now, you know, we don't want that 10-year going the, to 350. The easing of financial conditions does not help the Fed land this no-landing plane that is being, you know, dialed into. I want to make one last point on, on the stock market. I look at the S&P 500. There are 210 stocks in the S&P 500 that are down on the year. Okay, so think about that. The S&P is up 20% of the year. The equal aid S&P is up 7.5% of the year. There's a lot of stocks in, in that major average that don't act particularly well. And I'm assuming that's because of of fundamentals, right? But then there's a whole host of stocks that act extraordinarily well, A, because of fundamentals, their exposure into the secular shift, their exposure to all this passive investing behavior and the like here. And so to me, that's the thing that probably has to meet in the middle at some point. If we do have more headwinds from an economic standpoint where investors, A, want to sharpen their pencils and say, okay, what do we own and what the environment is going to be like going forward? And I just don't think that's been done right now. Well, Treasury yields pulled back midday following a big auction of 10-year notes, 30-year bonds heading to the auction block tomorrow. Our Rick Santelli joins us now with the details. Rick, I saw, I saw you when uh, you graded the auction C-, minus, so it wasn't great. Um, what's your take on what's going to happen with the 30-year tomorrow? Yeah, it was a C- minus on 10s. It was a D on three years, and I think I was overly generous on both. You know, you bring up a good point, though. Uh, if you look at an intraday chart a couple of days of threes and tens on one chart, what you definitely see is that we made our high yields right as the auctions ended. 11.30 Eastern for the three-year. That was the highest yield intraday going back to the end of November. If you look at one o'clock Eastern for the 10-year, it made its highest intraday yield going back to the 4th of December. Now, if you open the charts up for a week, you could see the importance here. Yes, yields came down after they spiked on auctions, but they're still elevated. And if you look at a 30-year, which is tomorrow, 21 billion, uh, it's completed a cycle from the end of August to basically three days ago. So the real issue is what's it going to do next? And I think if you look at auctions in general, think about baseball games, okay? If you have a first place team and they're doing well in the standings, but you didn't watch the game and somebody asks you, hey, uh, what do you think about Team XYZ? Well, they're looking great. They're in first place. Well, 10-year yields, 30-year yields, we haven't had a lot of problems there. So many say, oh, I don't understand why these grades are weak. Look at how great these sectors have been doing during tumultuous times. And what my answer is, you have a couple of bad games. It can affect you in the macro. That's why these auctions are so important. So for tomorrow's 21 billion 30 years, all you have to do is watch the pricing. If the when issued is higher than the results and it tails, I don't care what the market does after the auction. That means investors are not being aggressive. What we want to see is the when issued lower than the actual yield once the Dutch auction results come out. That's good. That's called stopping through. And we want to pay particularly close attention to the indirect categories, which represent foreign interest, because in the grand scheme of things, you could have a lot of weak auctions before you start to affect the overall market. But watching who is strong and weak on the bidding gives you the best information. Back to you. Rick, thank you. Always good to see you. Rick Santelli.
Evercore ISI out with its 2024 market outlook, calling for the S&P to reach 47.50 at the end of next year, following a mild recession in the first half. The price objective just 128 points higher than today's close. Joining us now is the person behind this forecast, Julian Emanuel, Senior Managing Director at Evercore ISI. Julian, always good to see you. Um, you just take a look at the, the absolute numbers, and it doesn't seem like there's much movement, but you're actually saying that there's going to be a lot of movement within the year. Yeah, uh, a lot of churn. So, look, we, we were treated to a very non-volatile year this year. As much as people want to think, you know, we did have a banking crisis for a couple of days back in March. Uh, we had a peak when the, the Fed made what we think it was the last hike in the cycle. And if you drop back and you go back to the last time sentiment was this low in terms of numbers of bears, it was early 2018. And if you think of all the roller coasters that we've been on since then, the one thing as an investor that you can't do is let your emotions go and sell low and buy high. And the way we look at the market right now is that there's going to be enough event risk over the next 12 months and there's enough tightening in the pipeline so that there will be that temptation to sell low and buy high. And we don't want to do that. And we want to message the fact that it's going to be a year where you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to play a little bit of defense, having played a lot of offense the last number of months, and that ultimately patience will end up being rewarded. So what does that mild recession look like, and when will stocks start pricing that in? So, so we think it's, it's sooner rather than later. I think we've talked uh, a few moments ago about sort of the first quarter looking a, a little sloppy, and obviously December tends to be very positive seasonally, but when you think about the catalysts, you know, Two potential government closure iterations, an election in Taiwan, uh, you know, a number of other things. The, the Iowa caucuses, that entire cycle starting up uh, against the backdrop that the economy very slowly but perceptibly is weakening. And there, there is the fine line, particularly with the tick up on, in unemployment. We do think that the caution will be warranted coming into the new year. Julian, 47.50 in the S&P would be 20 times, almost on the screws, your 2025 earnings estimates of about $235. So there's obviously some math associated with that. But what are the chances that that 235, given everything we just heard from Hasbro, again, I'm not making Hasbro to be the economy, but continued layoffs across a number of sectors that 235 is high what are the chances uh so our view is actually when you think about 2024 where consensus has it wrong is consensus is too high for 2024 that number is more like what people are thinking about 2024 and obviously that kind of news we think this is going to be the third consecutive year of essentially unchanged earnings right and so so when you think about valuations Remember, this year was entirely multiple driven. Yes, it was driven underneath the hood by a number of stocks whose, whose uh, earnings did rise. But at the aggregate, multiple driven. The fact is, is that is that the risk to earnings is less about the exit out of the recession, because you do get an acceleration 
and more about sort of what's right in front of us. So using your under the hood metaphor, so as you look at the subsectors below the S&P that you think will outperform and underperform next year, I'll pick out two that, that I think have had a tough year. Um, again, as people were really in offensive mode, but industrials um, and healthcare have had a pretty tough year. Now, you can make an argument that Dan talked about all these stocks, 210 stocks in the S&P that are down on the year. You're gonna find a ton of healthcare stocks. You're gonna find a ton of industrials. How do you see that separation? Because look, I, healthcare is always defensive during the times you're talking about. But I look at big pharma right now, and outside of Lilly and Novo, um, a lot of these stocks have been disasters. Not just not just a little bit. And I own one of them, so I mean, you know, I, I get it. And and then I, I look at the industrial side, and I and I make an argument that so I get why healthcare historically performs during the kind of market you're talking about next year. Industrials have already had their bear market. So shouldn't, you know, the other side of that is some of these companies have already suffered mightily in 23. So, so I think you have to separate between the two. And in healthcare, you're totally right, Tim. Essentially, the, the, the GLP-1 and everything else trade has really what caused generalist investors to walk away from the group at a time when, if you think about it, with interest rate volatility and geopolitical uncertainty, you should actually be doubling down there. And given our view on slow growth, we think that's going to be you know, fruitful. And frankly, if you think about the last few weeks with the, the sort of catch up in the equal weight, that's part of what you're seeing rotation into some of the tax loss names that have been sold. We think that continues into next year. Industrials is a little bit different. Look, I'm sympathetic to this concept of a rolling recession. But frankly, when you look at Canada just rolling over printing negative GDP last week, we know what's going on in China, France and Germany negative. We just don't think that the U.S. can remain indefinitely sort of an, an island of prosperity in the sea of slowdown. And so even though there has been a good deal of damage done to industrials, we think that's going to persist for a bit longer. One last question. They're going to scream in my ear because mm. I'm asking one last question. But uh, given this volatility, given what you're forecasting in terms of mild recession, it seems like it'd be wise to stay maybe in 5% treasuries at this point. So, so at least, at least through the period of recession, we around this table have had this discussion yeah. a number of times over the last six or seven years is that as an individual investor, this is one of these times the market has had a great run. You need to think about how you're going to feel if the market comes in 15 percent, basically what we're calling or maybe even a little bit more. Are you a buyer down there? OK, if you're not you need to raise a little bit of cash. It's just not going to hurt you at this price. Julian, thank you. Good to see you. Julian you. Emanuel, what do you think? It's interesting. You know, it's, when you say it through the way he says it, very measured, makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. People at home, problem, of course, is the people that say, yeah, I'll be a buyer down 15 to 20%. When it happens, it's always a lot scarier and for reasons you never envisioned. So those people would be like, sign me up. When we do, in fact, if, in fact, we get there, we'll be the ones probably going the other way. So I think he's exactly right, by the way, in terms of his uh, prognostications for next year. I actually think maybe a little bit lower in the first half of the year. But it's reasonable to think we're right back where we are now at the end of next year. Yeah, and he mentioned other parts of the world. It's just interesting. DAX went to all-time highs today. Um, you have other parts of the world in Japan where, you know, what's going on with monetary policy and the BOJ, um, probably pretty good for Japanese equities where I think you're going to see outperformance. 
Coming up, we are watching Oracle after our shares on the move after reporting results. The details on that quarter and how to trade this name next. Plus, a real miracle on 34th Street. Macy's jumping on a potential buyout bid. But is this just the start of more deal-making in this space? The department store details when Fast Money returns. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee right here on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you. Shares of Oracle dropping after reporting mixed results. Earnings coming in slightly ahead of estimates while revenue fell short. Our Christina Parts and Evels got more on the quarter. Christina. Melissa, well, revenue uh, came in short in three operating segments. Hardware was the only category actually to surpass estimates. But on the call right now, they did, just gave Q3 guidance. They expect total revenues for Q3, including Cerner, to grow roughly 6 to 8%, with Q3 non-GAAP EPS to be in a range of $1.35 to $1.39. Uh, that falls in line with estimates at $1.37. Oracle, keep in mind, is still struggling to fully integrate its health information platform that's called Cerner, which it acquired back in 2022. That integration is slowing Oracle's revenue growth rate right now. Uh, also, CEO Safra Katz saying on the call, quote, given the enormity of our pipeline and backlog, I expect CapEx will be somewhere around $8 billion this fiscal year, meaning our second half CapEx will be considerably higher as we bring on online more capacity. And then in the last point, which is the most important for this company, Oracle's OCI, or the cloud infrastructure business, aims, which it aims to be the fourth uh, public cloud provider after AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud. Well, that business hit $1.6 billion during the quarter, up 52%. Includes clients like Elon Musk startup X.ai, Samsung, uh, and even now rival Microsoft. And just on the call right now, Larry Allison saying that he believes OCI growth rate will be over 50% for a few years. Very bullish on that category. All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Parts Nevela, so pairing losses uh, from the after hours drop that we saw initially, but still down 7% here. Guy? It should pair losses. I don't think it's a bad quarter. I don't yeah. think the guidance is a disaster. I think people looked at cloud revenue miss and they're like, all right, cloud slowing, sell first, ask questions later. Which, listen, I understand what's going on in the world right now, but on valuation, you can justify the stock. I think the quarter's fine. We were just $100, I think, in October. I actually think you can buy Oracle between 105 and 107 for so a trade. $1.6 billion 
in cloud revenue growing 50% a year for the time, like, yeah. have at it. Because, you know, if you look at, you know, AWS is going to be at 100 folks, billion. Um, could we do a, a, what, what I'm saying is, when Dan says have at yeah. it, he means don't, don't have at it. Don't have it. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. To be clear. Right, Maybe the going. new graphics packages, they can put a little, like, like sarcasm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, um, I mean, you, you know what I'm saying here, right? Like, so Azure, I do. Like, like, it's just, it's, it's a rounding error right now relative to its competition. Like, like, like the size of that cloud, you know what I mean? Larry yeah, and Elon true, are good buddies. I'm just saying. Does it have to be as big as Microsoft's business or does no. it have to be as big as Google's business? No, but that's no, why it trades 18 of- times. And so when you also tell right. me that they're having a hard time integrating their $26 billion um, Cerner acquisition, the company's a roll-up. Look at all of their revenue growth that they have every few years. It comes from the prior acquisition. So if they're not good at integrating the prior acquisition, which is, you know, 15, 20 percent of their market cap right now, where it is right now, I think, or, you know, something like that. What is it, a $300 billion market cap? And it was like a 26, 27, you know, so just doing some quick math here. I mean, that's their business model rolling up other companies and integrating that revenue and getting cost savings. Well, their first quarter guide to this quarter was really conservative. And and I think the company suffered then. So, I mean, this is kind of how they rolled. They had an analyst day back in September where they've guided to, you know, essentially 9% uh, compounded annual growth rate to 26. Nothing changes here. Comps were really tough. Um, I I hear you, Dan. Um, But I I think there are people out there, at least in the software space, that are going to continue to have at it. Yeah, but real quickly, I mean, two consecutive misses and guide down. You know what I mean? Like, so the company's fundamentals are not improving and everything else. You throw a dart at your main board and you can find a software or a SaaS company, you know, like that's going up. It's, it's, you know, like, so I don't know. I mean, why do you have to buy this one? We saw this from Cisco. People were all geeked up about Cisco a few weeks ago and that one got killed too. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Is there a department store deal in the works? Shares of Macy's surging after one investor group looks to scoop up the retail chain, the price tag, and what it could mean for the rest of the sector. Next. Plus, options action heating up as activity nears a record in 2023. We'll track the trends and trades leading the charge. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Macy's soaring to nine-month highs after reports the company might be taken private. Arkhouse Management and Brigade Capital offering to buy the retailer for $5.8 billion. The investor group already has a stake in Macy's and has met with the board to discuss the buyout offer. The Macy's hasn't yet made clear whether it is interested. The retail giant closing up 19% today in its best day since November 2021. Other legacy retailers, including Kohl's and Nordstrom, also closing up on the report. So, Could this usher in a new wave of retail deals? Do we think that this will actually get done? What I thought was interesting, of course, is the CEO is going to retire in February, and that usually paves the way for some sort of change in terms of ownership. If Macy's... I'm not on the board of Macy's. I'm not the CEO. But you if they hit the bid, if they no, no, not at all. Okay. If they believe in their business, if they think there's going to be some resurgence or turnaround, they should laugh at this offer because it's basically, in my opinion, it's a real estate deal. I mean, I think that, and I put it on Twitter last night. It's 
eerily reminiscent of Gordon Gecko claiming they wanted Blue Star Airlines only to gut the thing and take the assets and spin everything off. Why did off. he wreck that company? Because it was wreckable, right, Tim. And I you. think yeah. that's what we might be seeing our here. Our fast money trailer for Wall Street best. was one of some yeah. of our best work. Um, and Macy's best work was probably back when that movie came out. So, it, but, but if you listen to, to Starboard back in 2015, they put a $21 billion uh, valuation on the real estate assets. Other people are just looking at the overall valuation that on a trailing 12 month is, you know, probably 4.2 times EV EBITDA. And trailing doesn't mean a lot, but it kind of means something here. So, uh, look, it's been 100, but it, this has been 100 base, uh, excuse me, 100% move in this company in, I don't know, 20 sessions. Where was all this sentiment 20 mm-hmm. sessions ago? Question for the group. Amazing. Oh, really quickly. Yes. Like, isn't it fascinating? We've spent better part of this year talking about the problems in commercial real estate on the other side of the rate increases and this and whatever. And this deal is all about real estate. You know what I mean? Like when you think about it in, in a, you know, maybe they've called down to some of the best properties that they have and the like here. But I just find it kind of interesting. And I think we might see more of it. So to Guy's point, like you might as well hold out because if you don't think rates are going that much higher and the economy's in for a soft landing or a no landing, I mean, maybe there's something uh, a higher bid to hit. Coming up, some heavy options action activity nearing record levels this year. And there is one trend helping fuel the surge. We have the details in the trade that should be on your radar next. Plus, Snap and Nike jumping after some Wall Street calls. Why analysts are getting so bullish on these names when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Kick off the week in the green as investors brace for tomorrow's CPI data and Wednesday's Fed decision. The Dow, S&P and Nasdaq, all with small gains. The stocks try to add to a six-week winning streak. Shares of Eli Lilly falling more than 2%. A study finding patients who stopped using the company's weight loss drug regained about half the weight they lost a year after stopping shares of the drug. Lilly um, still up nearly 60% this year. Now, the latest consolidation deal in the energy space, Occidental Petroleum agreeing to buy Permian producer Crown Rock for $12 billion. That deal expected to close next year in the first quarter. Oxy also raising its quarterly dividend to $0.22 cents a share, up from 18 And Bitcoin's rally finally letting up. The crypto dropping 8% today, hovering near the $40,000 level. All the Bitcoin-related names took it on the chin today as well. And the options market is booming with the most action it has seen in at least 50 years. That Mm. is according to an analysis done by the Wall Street Journal. Gunjan Banerjee, the author of that report, joins us here on set. She's also a CNBC contributor. Gunjan, great to have you with us. And it's amazing how much it's risen, but also what it's been driven by, and that is short-dated options. That's right. There's been a mania in these shorter-dated options known as zero DTE, and that's really helped turbocharge this mania that really began in 2020 during the pandemic when people were stuck at home, they were opening their Robinhood apps and playing the options market. And since then, the activity has just soared and soared and soared. Shorter dated options recently made up around half of all activity. And, you know, this is a new product. This is something that wasn't even on the scenes, you know, last year, two years ago. So it's pretty remarkable when you look under the hood. Is there a sense of of what percentage of those zero dated options are retail driven or institutional? Many of those zero dated options are retail driven. They are part of the mix, especially in the market for S&P 500 index options. I've seen mixed estimates of that, but 
rookie investors, they loom large in this market. They actually make up a greater share of the options market than they do the stock market. Of course, that raises concerns of are these individual investors taking too much risk out there in markets? Um, Some of the most popular trades that you highlight in your report are sort of the usual suspects, AI, Tesla is always the most popular individual option. What other things have risen to the top? It's really been a way for people to magnify their bets on AI. I was surprised to see um, Tesla, you know, make the top of the list once again, especially because of how popular NVIDIA has been as a trade. It also seems like these one-day options, they become a way for people to play the economic uncertainty that we've seen this year. Four out of the top five trading days for one-day S&P 500 options were around days like CPI, the labor market data, GDP data. So watch out for that in trading tomorrow and Wednesday when we see CPI, PPI, because that's been a way for people to play these huge moves in stocks and bonds through things like TLT. You mentioned that these options didn't exist a year ago. What is on the horizon? Is there something, is there a slice in the options world that is even shorter dated than what we have now? If there is, I think exchanges and brokerages are going to try to, you know, create it out of thin air because this is a cash cow for ETF providers, for retail brokerages. Let's not forget options make up, um, they're much more lucrative for these retail brokerages than stocks are because of payment for order flow. That's one of the biggest sources of revenue. And I think people are going to try to, you know, capture this golden goose while it's still around. Gunjan, thanks for coming by. I appreciate it. Gunjan Banerjee of the Wall Street Journal and a CNBC contributor. It's a great piece. I think options clients are four times more valuable in terms of, you know, the way the metrics are as opposed to just an equity client. But I'll say this as well. It's probably statistically true that if you sell options and earn premium, you write 75, 80 percent of the time. What they don't tell you, though, in the fine print is that 20 percent of the time can be catastrophic. So, my again, one of the many concerns I have are these types of options. I think people are playing with fire. Well, these uh, record options volumes could offer insight into how investors are looking at the markets. Let's bring in Mike Coe to break this all down. Mike, I'm sure you are very well aware of all these stats and these popular options trades. What stood out to you this past year in terms of how people are using options and what they're betting on? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One of of them you were just mentioning, Tesla, obviously, it's number one for the year to date. But actually, NVIDIA has surpassed it more recently. And it's only because Tesla had such a huge lead for the first half of the year that it's unlikely that NVIDIA is going to be able to close the gap. But it's really these top 25 largest names where almost all of the single stock options are being traded. 82% of the options volume today, for example, was concentrated in just the top 25 stocks. And speaking to the short dated nature, because of course she was talking a lot about the zero DTE and how people are using those in the index and ETF space to sort of make their macro bets. There aren't zero DTE options on single stocks, but 78% of the top 500 most active contracts that traded today uh, expire by the end of this week. So there's definitely investor favor for these short, shorter dated options. Mike, do you see risk, let, let's say, in the index, in the S&P, every, every day you look up, and as you just mentioned, you know, it's the, that day's expiration in the S&P 500 is the most active. Do you see risk to the market structure if we were to kind of get into some haywire period in the market where so many investors or so many traders have been trained to use these in a way that they may not exactly understand? Yeah, I, well, I think there's there's always that risk when you have a new product that uh, there are aspects of risk that are associated with them that the people who just started to use them aren't completely familiar with. You know, one thing that I think is kind of interesting is that if 
individual traders are actually going out there and buying options. So if they're not getting short, which is what Guy was suggesting. So if you sell options, you're probably more likely to be right. But the cost when you're wrong could be severe. But if most of the retail flow is actually buying, someone has to be selling. And who is that? That's typically going to be the market making community. And the market making com community, unlike a lot of these retail traders, are what we call hedging their deltas. That means they're going to trade futures and they're going to trade the underlying to hedge the exposure that they're getting against all of that retail flow. And I think there is a potential risk because, of course, if they're getting short a lot of uh, short dated options, their hedging may have to accelerate as the market moves. And that can contribute to volatility. Mike, thank you. Mike Coe. Coming up, a social surge shares a snap crackling and popping higher. Oh, Nearly 75% in the last two months, and the street thinks the stock isn't going to disappear anytime soon. The Topping the Tape calls after the break, plus more live sports on Netflix. The streaming giant now set to serve up some tennis. Will this latest volley put a scare into Disney, Fox, and the big names in the court? We'll debate next. Fast Money, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Social stock Snap surging today in a big call from Wells Fargo. Analysts upgrading the name to overweight from equal weight, saying it is poised for a positive growth inflection thanks to reinvestment in ad tech and a more focused management team. Snap has been on a tear since September, now up more than 90 percent from its September lows. Both uh, Dan and Tim are active, but you recently bought more, right? Yeah, I did. I, part of this is just a story where I think the comps get a lot, lot easier for this company. And I think that's where we are. And, and it, moving the needle a little bit. I also just think we're in an environment where uh, media stocks are, if we want to call this company that, at least from an advertising perspective, uh, I think you're starting to see at least a surge. You're taking back a lot of that. Remember, Snap, part of what, what their, their downfall was five, six, seven quarters ago uh, was talking about their ad business. So um, I think there's more to go. Yeah, but it's but, Tim, don't you agree that a lot of this move has to do with momentum and has to do like with sure. the sort of chase? And, and so to me, you know, I get a little worried. If you're just looking at the chart, you say to yourself, there's a gap going back about a year ago to 23 bucks and, and it may be smooth sailing. But um, I'm not sure they fixed a lot of stuff on the product front that they have. And you think of some of the headwinds, the digital advertising. I'm not sure those have really abated that much. So I'm just I have a hard time. You've been there and you've been long it. And I think you're, you're you know, what I mean, you're I'm not sure you chase it here, though, is my point. The laggards in the space are being rewarded. I mean, since Pinterest had that activist, I think it was around, what, $18, $19. I mean, stock's probably doubled. Look at pins right now, probably at a two-year-ish two high. That probably has momentum. So to Dan's point, is it momentum-driven? Yes. Can it continue and to you work? you still got a page, right? Is that I have one of it the hasn't best. Hasn't been touched for yeah. 15 years. I don't even know what that. So what? I mean, Pinterest actually called me over the weekend and said, "We just want to commend you on your page." On staying, on staying the course on yeah, that one page. Staying the course on that yeah. one page. That's impressive. Nobody visits it. Uh, elsewhere, <laughs> City upgrading Nike to a buy from a neutral, raising its price target on the sportswear giant to 135 from 100. Analysts saying they're more optimistic about the company's ability to protect EPS through 2025. City also mentioning the positive impact the 2024 Paris Olympics could have for Nike. They also like. The China business, which is uh, nice to hear. You had been short, Nike. I, yeah, look, I, I covered it 25% ago, and I, I, I want to own it again. I own it in a couple accounts. I, I, look, it's world-class, whether it's innovation or whether it's their North American market that continues to grow. I, I do think uh, that there is challenges. Go back to what Julian was saying in the, in the start of the show in terms of discretionary, and I think there's a lot of exposure there. But Nike's valuation really cheapened up. Um, it's had a huge move. It's 35% 
percent off those lows, I, I don't think you need to chase it here. Look at the chart. If you go back, and then was first of all, you have double bottoms between 88 and a half and 90 ish. If you look at that recent low, August, I think the high was 127 and a half. They report on December 21st. Couple analysts sort of bit the bullet today and upgraded the stock to buy from neutral. I think the average price target's 121. I think there's a very good chance to get to between 125 and 128 by earnings next week. It is kind of brave to stick your neck out just 10 days before the earnings report after the run since around September that we've seen, right? I mean, you have, you've got to really believe that they've got the goods. They've got well, and there's channel checks and there's yeah. there's a lot of data that they're combing through to see what's going on, and they probably have some read into the quarter, but it it has had a major move. Coming up, Netflix shares feeling the love today as the streaming giant gets ready to host another live sporting event. Will this be a grand slam for the stock? We'll debate and trade it next. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. A match point move out of Netflix, the streaming giant planning to live stream an exhibition tennis match between superstars Rafael Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz. The event called the Netflix Slam will stream live from Las Vegas on March 3rd. So could this be an ace for Netflix as live sports heats up the streaming wars? We should note that they say that other matches between other stars will be announced at a later date. So this is not just a one-off. This could actually be sort of a series. Yeah, I, listen, it obviously doesn't hurt. The market liked it today. I'll say this. It went from a very cheap stock relative to its history to a stock that's probably now borderline expensive yet again, given the run we've seen. So it's Netflix world. I want to be very clear about that. But I also don't think you go foray into the stock on the back of a couple guys playing tennis. No, but but think of all the moments in the last five years when we thought Netflix might be embarking upon a new segment mm-hmm. and, and what it's meant for at least, uh, again, someone who has uh, you know, global subs of, of $350 million, you know, a dynamic here that I think gives them a lot, a lot of reach and a lot of power at a time when bidding on sports is, is crazy and people have busted the bundle and they're in Netflix and they'll pay more for Netflix if they're getting this kind of sports. That's where I was going. Bidding on sports. They used to catch a lot of heat for all the money that they spent on original right. programming and they've actually morphed obviously to some lesser sort of programming options that, you know, less capital commitment and the like here. But when you think about this kind of growing ad business that they have, it does give them more levers uh, to do that. And I think sports gives them obviously that opportunity. So to me, I think it makes a lot of sense, but I think it's one of those things that probably gets investors antennas up and, and really starts thinking a little bit more about valuation, but with over what, 200 well, so million let me, subs, yeah, It's like, 250, it's not 350, yeah, it's 250 or something like that. I mean, that's where the next growth opportunity lies. It seems really smart that the way Netflix is going about live sports, they're not competing necessarily. Mm-hmm. They're not bidding for an event like NFL football. The where you know there's going to be five exactly. people in line. They're creating their own sports events that nobody else is bidding You know, there's for. a sports event that we've been talking about putting together here on Fast Money it's that has pickleball. Some, we, we, a pickleball contest between Guy bro and Karen, down. which, which I, bro I, down. I, I tell you bro what, down. I mean, I, I think that that would raise that some would, dough. If we can get Netflix to that? pick it up. I, I, know, mean, I, I know I'd pay to watch it. The only one. Up next, Final Trades. It is time for the final trade, Tim Seymour. Yeah, let's go with one of those online sports bettors, DraftKings, who continues to make money, and it's only the early stages. Dan Nathan. Yeah, let's go with one of those Tim Seymour names, Starbucks. It had that great quarter about a month ago, filled in that gap, probably moves higher, back to 105. 
guy? We were just breaking down Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Very intense. It's very in- we'll talk about that tomorrow. took a hit. A big hit. Yeah. Oracle on the sell-off, Melms. Clarice is my favorite. Thanks Love. for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.